In May 1930, a young Englishwoman from Yorkshire arrived in Sydney, Australia. She received a welcome fit for a queen. On behalf of the government and the people of New South Wales, I bid the warmest of welcomes to the little woman of whom the empire is proud today. Amy Johnson had become the first female pilot to fly from the United Kingdom to Australia. It was a remarkable feat for the 26-year-old who was born the same year the Wright brothers launched the first flight. It was also a notable achievement for a British woman, considering that just two years earlier, most women, Johnson included, weren't even allowed to vote. In this episode, I explore the life of the extraordinary aviator, from her childhood through her greatest triumphs, up until her tragic and still controversial death. Amy Johnson was born on the 1st of July 1903 in Kingston-upon-Hull to John Johnson, a fish merchant, and his wife, Amy Nee Hodge. She had a somewhat privileged upbringing. Her grandfather, William Hodge, had served as the mayor of Hull. The oldest of three girls, she was able to enrol at the University of Sheffield, where she studied economics. Upon graduating, she moved to London and began work as a secretary. It was here, in her early 20s, that she developed an interest in flying by a complete accident. Having disembarked from a bus on Stag Lane, her curiosity was aroused by the Stag Lane aerodrome. She wandered in and discovered that for a week's wages, she could learn to fly. She soon befriended Fred Slingsby, a man 10 years her senior. He was a veteran of World War I, a conflict that was a boon for the fledgling aviation industry, as the military had quickly realized the value of aircrafts over the field of battle. Aged just 20, Slingsby had been a gunner on an aircraft which the pilot was shot and killed. He exited his passenger seat and climbed into the front of the craft before regaining control and landing it safely. He later founded the Yorkshire Gliding Club, of which his friend Johnson would become a member. Another World War I veteran, Welshman Valentine Baker, became Amy's flight instructor. During 1929, she gained a pilot's license and became the first woman to earn a ground engineer's sea license. Her father was extremely proud of her achievements and strongly encouraged her to pursue her flying career. In conjunction with her philanthropist, Lord Wakefield, he raised funds for her to buy a used de Havilland DH-60 Moth. The de Havilland company was owned by cousins of Amy's near contemporaries, the movie stars Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Ten years earlier, the Australian government had offered a reward to any Aussie national willing to make a flight from Britain to Australia. Brothers Keith and Ross McPherson Smith successfully completed the challenge in a converted World War I bomber. In 1930, Amy Johnson, who'd only been a licensed pilot for a year, resolved to repeat their accomplishment in her second-hand craft, which she'd named Jason. At this point, her longest flight had been from London to her childhood home in Yorkshire. She'd never even crossed the English Channel, much less explored the world, but she was determined to make the trip the 11,000-mile journey commenced at Croydon Airport in London. 
it wasn't straightforward by any means. The small craft had a tiny fuel tank, and by modern standards, it was slow. Consequently, the journey involved 15 pit stops before reaching Australia. Some destinations such as Karachi and Calcutta were cities within the British Empire. Others such as Vienna, Constantinople and Bangkok were not. Johnson hoped to beat the time set by Australian pilot Bert Hinkler when he became the first person to make the trip solo two years earlier in 1928. But it was a horrendous journey. She landed in a sandstorm in Baghdad yet still reached Karachi in record time. She then landed on a parade ground in front of stunned Indian military. When she arrived in Rangoon, a bumpy landing saw a hole ripped in Jason's wings. Locals patched it up with old aircraft material left lying around from World War I. In a later interview, Johnson, who'd been described by Jack Humphreys as a natural-born engineer, said that previously, when presented with mechanical challenges, she would turn to a man for help. But she quickly realised the men around her used tools to fix most of the problems. So she familiarised herself with the tools of the trade, and thereafter proved that she could do anything that a male engineer could. By this time in the journey, any lingering hopes of beating Hinkler's record had been dashed due to a combination of bad weather and mechanical issues. With her plane having undergone repairs in Burma, the press reported that she was still chipper as she departed the British colony. Newspaper pundits in the shape of veteran airmen cautioned that the worst was yet to come, with the area around Singapore in particular providing treacherous flying conditions. But the redoubtable Johnny, as she was affectionately dubbed by the press, was more than a match for anything Mother Nature could throw at her. On the 24th of March, 1930, she landed in Darwin, Australia. The entire journey had taken just 19 and a half days, including three days lost due to repairs. But her mission wasn't quite over. She then flew across the entire continent of Australia before receiving her warm welcome in Sydney. Her success led to her becoming a cultural icon. Women adopted the so-called Johnson hairstyle. Jack Hilton wrote a song about her. But Johnson's heroic endeavour came at a perfect time for Britain. The country, despite having won the war, had endured economic hardship in its aftermath, which had only been exacerbated by the Wall Street crash, which occurred just months before she left Croydon. Moreover, the country had what the press described as a surplus of women due to male casualties during the war. Estimates suggested there were as many as 2 million more women than men. In what was still very much a patriarchal society, Johnson was an inspiration for other women seeking to break down the traditional barriers that separated the genders. A crowd of a million people lined the streets to welcome her back to Britain. 
capitalising on the public mood, King George V honoured Johnson by making her a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire. She was suddenly the it girl of the 1930s, with her picture being used in promotions for BP petrol and castor oil. The Daily Mail newspaper paid her £10,000 to embark on a national tour through which she could share her story, but also motivate other patriotic young Brits. I have a message to give to the youth of this country. I am so proud to belong to the young people. I feel that the pe young people of this country are those who are doing things, who are doing things to help make England the most wonderful nation in the world. And if we're going to accomplish the ideal of making England the tip-top country in the world, we've got to get England in the air. And I want all you young people to help me. The Daily Mail are helping me to accomplish this. They're taking me on a tour through England. And the special object of this tour is to encourage the youth of Britain to take to the air. In Australia, I was given a truly wonderful time. It was almost worthwhile doing my flight to get to know the Australian people who are a loyal and generous and warm-hearted nation. I bring to the people of England many messages from them. But what I am looking forward to is meeting my own people of England. And at each place that I visit, I want to meet as many of you as possible. And I also ask anyone who is especially interested in flying to come to me for any help that they think I might be able to give them. I would like now to thank everyone for the marvelous messages of goodwill and congratulations that they have sent to me in Australia and to England since my return. It's been truly wonderful of you to take such an interest in my flight. And I don't want that interest, which is really an interest in the romance and adventure of aviation, to die out. There is room for romance. Adventure isn't dead. And for the young people, there are marvelous opportunities in the air. So to the youth of this country, good luck, good success, and just remember, take to the air and take to it actively and seriously. And I am with you. But she didn't let the adulation go to her head. And she cut the tour short after just a month on the road. She modestly dismissed her celebrity status and pronounced that within five years, every woman will be making such flights. While that prophecy never came to fruition, Johnson continued setting records. In 1931, along with co-pilot Jack Humphreys, she set a record by flying the 1700 miles to Stalinist Moscow in just one day. She then continued on to Tokyo, again in record time. The Japanese emperor of the era was Hirohito, and within a decade, the nation under his control would be at war with Britain. But it's a remarkable testament to her charisma and global appeal 
that she was able to cross international boundaries during tumultuous times, seemingly without a care in the world. Throughout her life, Amy Johnson had been around and had been respected by successful men. It's perhaps unsurprising then that in 1932, she married a man who while lacking her fame, was on a professional level her equal. Glasgow-born Jim Mollison became the RAF's youngest pilot in 1923, when he was just 18. He served in India before becoming a reservist and a flight instructor. In 1932, he set a record when he flew from London to Australia in just nine days, approximately half the time it had taken Johnson just two years earlier. He broke another record when he flew from London to South Africa. But despite his success, he paid the bills with more conventional work, as he was employed for a time as a commercial pilot for the Australian National Airways. And it was in this capacity he found himself on a flight alongside Amy Johnson. Mollison was a cocky individual, oozing confidence. He was also a ladies' man, and for him, Johnson was the ideal catch. Conversely, Johnson had been self-conscious about her looks for much of her life. As a child, she lost her teeth, having been hit in the face with a cricket ball. The false teeth she wore had given her anxiety. But regardless of her own insecurities, the British media, while hailing her as the Queen of the Sky, had also placed her on a pedestal of beauty, usually reserved for Hollywood heroines. It's claimed that Mollison proposed to her just eight hours after they met. And in 1932 they married, and became the 1930s equivalent of Posh Spice and David Beckham. But the nuptials didn't distract Johnson from her greatest love, flying. And the same year they were married, she set out to try and break one of the records her own husband had set. With her old plane Jason having long since been retired, Johnson set her sights on flying from London to Cape Town in record time. Giving yet another talk to British Movie Tone News before starting off on what is, I hope, to be my third long distance flight. This time I'm going to try to make the Cape in uh, something under my husband's record time, which, as you'll remember, was four days, 17 hours, 25 minutes. I know I shall have to work very hard to improve on that. It'll mean very little sleep, but my machine has a slightly better performance than his has, and I hope to make a slightly faster time. I'm calling my machine the Desert Cloud. I hope um, that departing from the name of Jason won't bring me bad luck, but I think the Desert Cloud is a very pretty name. Well, you know, Amy, I wish you the very best of luck on this trip. And, um, in a way, I wish I were going with you. In another way, I don't. And, um, I hope I'll see you back here in England within about three weeks. Would you be back by then? <laughs> Needless to say, she beat her husband's record. But a year later, her husband had his eyes set on establishing a new world record of his own, flying from New York to Baghdad in record time. Rather than taking a conventional route to the starting point, Mollison and Johnson decided to fly across the Atlantic. It was a hazardous journey, as their plane remained far from land due to their desire to maintain a fast pace. Eventually, they reached the east coast of America, a fuel shortage caused them to fall short of New York. Instead, 
they crash landed in Connecticut. The duo escaped with minor injuries, but regardless of the disappointing end to their journey, they were treated to a ticker tape parade in New York and lunch with President Roosevelt. And it was in America that Amy Johnson forged a new friendship with a kindred spirit, Amelia Earhart. Just a year earlier, Earhart had made the trek across the Atlantic in the opposite direction, thus becoming the first woman to do so. When she returned to England, Johnson became increasingly involved in matters beyond the aerodrome. She tried to hand up modelling and became the president of the Women's Engineering Society. The press extensively covered her. She was an antidote to the scandal-plagued royal family when Edward VIII was forced to abdicate. She was also a beacon of hope when the dark clouds engulfed the aviation industry with the Hindenburg crash, which was soon followed by Amelia Earhart's disappearance. But the idyllic life Britons read about in the newspaper was cracking at the seams. The flying sweethearts, Jim Mollison and Amy Johnson, were in crisis. A habitual tendency towards philandering on his behalf came to light when Johnson caught him in a compromising position with one of his lovers. In 1938, the duo filed for divorce. By this time, there were bigger issues in the world than flight records and celebrity marriages. Japan had invaded China, Italy, Abyssinia, and Germany, the Sudetenland. The world was on the verge of another great conflict, just 20 years after the so-called war to end all wars. Johnson took a step back from the limelight. Some have claimed she was tired of the media intrusion into her life that had been ongoing for 10 years. Others suggested she thought it crass for the media to focus on relatively trivial things when the continent was on the brink. Regardless of her reasons, by 1939 she was working for the Isle of Wight Aviation Company. But the job was short-lived as the RAF requisitioned the company's aircraft at the outbreak of war. Johnson and her colleagues were made redundant, receiving just a £40 payoff for their troubles. Despite the fact that women like Johnson and Earhart had proven to be some of the greatest aviators in the world, when the conflict with Germany began, the Royal Air Force only employed male flyers. But another female pilot, Pauline Gower, who'd gained popularity as part of a flying circus, used her connections to pressure the government into fighting a role for the female flyers. It was decided that pilots such as Gower could serve the war effort through the Air Transport Auxiliary. This entity was responsible for flying damaged or new aircraft between factories and military bases. On the 1st of January 1940, the first eight female pilots officially began working with the ATA, an organisation Johnson's former husband was also working for. Shortly thereafter, Amy Johnson signed up for the ATA. It was uninspiring work for a pilot of her capabilities, but it enabled her to fly, to make a living, and to do her part for the war effort. But on the 5th of January 1941, precisely two years to the day since the missing Amelia Earhart had been officially declared dead, Johnson's journey came to an end. She departed Blackpool 
in an airspeed Oxford, destined for RAF Kidlington. But the weather was dire and Johnson was drastically blown off course. She overshot Oxford in south central England and found herself nearer to the southeast coast over the Thames estuary in Kent. Official reports at the time stated that her unintentional detour had left her craft short of fuel and she'd been seen abandoning the plane and parachuting to safety. But she missed the shore and landed in the freezing sea amid strong currents and heavy snowfall. Crew members of the HMS Haslamin saw her screaming for help. The crew tossed her a rope, but she wasn't able to reach it and she disappeared into the water. The captain of the vessel, Lieutenant Commander Walter Fletcher, heroically dove into the sea after his crew identified a second body floating in the waves. He swam to the second body, but was quickly overcome by hypothermia due to the intense cold. He lost his grip on the body before a lifeboat could reach him. By the time his men dragged him aboard, he was unconscious, and days later, he died. All that was ever found of Johnson was a bag containing her checkbook and her flight log. The identity of the second body in the water remains unknown. And so the official account of one of the world's greatest aviators ends. But the official story must be seen in the context of the time. A few decades earlier, Germany had shocked the world by sinking the passenger ship, the Lusitania. The Germans justified the assault on the civilian ship by declaring it had been carrying undeclared armaments for the war effort. The British government denied this, and to this day, still does. But almost a century after its sinking, divers examining the wreckage found huge quantities of undeclared munitions in the remains of the Lusitania. This is just one example of the British government hiding the truth when faced with a national tragedy. Amy Johnson had been a ray of light, particularly for women, during the dark days of the Great Depression. In the months leading up to her death, Britain had endured a humiliating defeat on the battlefield before the miraculous evacuation of Dunkirk. The country had been bombed relentlessly during the so-called Battle of Britain. With America still months away from joining the war, morale was low and defeat against the Nazis was a real prospect. This may explain why the published reports of Johnson's tragic demise on January the 5th so differ from the other accounts. In 1999, Tom Mitchell, a retired soldier from the 58th Heavy Ack Kent Regiment, went public with a guilty secret he'd been hiding for over 50 years. He claimed that on the night in question, he and three comrades made radio contact with an unidentified craft. The pilot gave the wrong call signal twice. They assumed it was a German aircraft and opened fire launching 16 rounds of shells over the Thames estuary. They saw the aircraft crash and only realized their mistake when they saw headlines about Johnson the next day. Historian David Luff has also claimed that Johnson was accidentally shot down, not by Mitchell and his crew, but by a Royal Navy vessel. 
There's no way to prove Mitchell Olive's claims are correct. And until this day, no official documents have been released to support either account or evidence of a cover-up. But beyond the cause of her plane crashing, there's also the question of her death. Lieutenant Commander Walter Fletcher had steered his vessel towards the body of the parachuting pilot, presumably Amy Johnson, in an attempt to rescue her before she disappeared. But in 2016, reports emerged from another historian, Alec Gill, that a surviving crew member of HMS Haslamere stated that in their attempts to rescue her, the boat had sailed too close to the pilot and her body had been sucked into the propellers with horrific and deadly results. Whether due to the confusion of war or a government cover-up, we'll likely never know the precise circumstances surrounding Amy Johnson's death. But more important than the how and the why of her demise is the story of the little girl born into a world where women couldn't even vote, who dared to take on new and dangerous technology and complete adventures that most of us can only dream about.